This episode of Armchair Explorer is brought to you by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. With seven drive modes, the Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys. And epic journeys is what we're all about. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Hi guys, welcome to the Armchair Explorer, where the world's greatest adventurers tell their best story from the road. My name's Aaron Miller, I'm a travel writer, and I just came across a word I absolutely love, outlandish. And by that, I mean wild, untamed, remote, I mean out there where most people never tread or don't even know exists. Sounds cool, right? Well, that's exactly where we're going, to the Outlands. Are you ready? Let's go. Taking us on this adventure is travel author Nick Hunt. Outlandish is actually the title of his new book, and as soon as I saw it, I was intrigued, excited, and immediately called him up to get him on the show. The subtitle of the book is Walking Europe's Unlikely Landscapes, but more than just unlikely, these places, in Nick's own words, are like portals, doorways of the imagination into distant times and different places. A patch of Arctic tundra in Scotland, a primeval forest in Poland, a Spanish desert, the great grassland steppe of Hungary. And through these journeys, we will begin to see the world through different eyes, begin to see deeper and be inspired to find those outlandish places near and far for ourselves. So if after listening to the episode, you're inspired to pick up the book yourself, you can find it anywhere and everywhere you usually get your books or go to nickhuntscrutiny.com to connect with him and find out more about this book, Outlandish, Walking Europe's Unlikely Landscapes, and all his other work too. Nick is a truly beautiful writer, and this is the sort of book that you want to savor slowly. I think you're really going to like it. So please do go and check that out. But for now, get ready because the journey is about to begin. A journey to strange lands and unlikely places, to the outlands. And it might just change the way you look at the world forever. I think every travel writer looks for these moments of, I call it in the book, transportation or kind of stepping through the portal. And it happened in Dungeness, on the east coast of England, on this stony shingle that reminded me of kind of a desert or some sort of post-apocalyptic American landscape anywhere but England. But I've also had a similar experiences kind of walking through a, a, a suburb in Germany where there's been a light dusting of snow and it just transforms everything. So part of the work is imagination. I'm always looking for these moments that allow you to tip into, through the portal, into a kind of imaginative space. And Dungeness really brought that home. So this led me on the search for what became these kind of outlandish places, which are really anomalies. Now they're these kind of landscapes and environments that seem to exist like enclaves of a, of, of a somewhere else, uh, very far away, whether in place or in time. One evening at sunset, he writes, with crimson light pouring over a scene of wind-whipped marim grass and the skeletons of boats, I experienced a moment of dislocation. Suddenly, I was not in England, but in a North American wasteland, some time in an imagined future that felt 
Dreamingly familiar, surrounded by the flotsam and jetsam of a collapsed culture. The light, the rusted metal cables, the plants like deformed cabbages, the presence of the power stations with their mysterious blinking lights, the landscape's sheer outlandishness. It was briefly enough to jolt me free from time and place. I love that idea portals, landscapes that become doorways that open our imagination to distant pasts and possible futures, landscapes that are so unusual, so out of place, so outlandish that they jar us out of our present reality. Dungeness, England's only desert, gave him a glimpse instantaneously of the deep past, the flint from the shingle beach that was used to spark fire eons ago, and the apocalyptic future. A nuclear power plant humming large and ominous behind him, whose waste will last for centuries after he's gone. It allowed him to bridge these two eternities, to see them in his imagination as a real thing, a line drawn through deep time with him, the bridge, at its center. For a moment in the dark, he writes, we stood between the past and the future, between what lay beneath our feet and what looms on the horizon. That moment was the spark, but the true journey began. The first portal he discovered was in the Cairngorm Mountains of Scotland. The reason that it's an anomalous place is because, in climatological terms, it's alpine arctic tundra, and there's no other example of that in mainland Britain. So it's a landscape that you'd expect to find in Scandinavia or Greenland or Iceland or Alaska, a weave of sort of tundra is is lichen and moss and and um, grasses and ferns all kind of densely packed together so you get that on the the plateau of the the Cairngorms which is the highest upland on the British Isles and for me it became a way of experiencing the wider north so the Cairngorms became my portal to the Arctic. It was a kind of transportation from uh, the highlands of Scotland into suddenly finding myself in, you know, the, the, the tundra of Siberia. It was the only journey actually I did with a, with a guide. who was also a good friend called Doogie. And he knows the mountains very well. He's been going there for years and years. And I was suitably daunted and respectful of the reputation of the Cairngorms for being in a, a very high, cold bleak place where you could potentially get lost and have bad things happen to you, especially in winter, which is when I made this journey. So we began at night, which is a good time to begin a journey. (laughs) Not many people do it that way, but we drove up from his home near Lockerbie up to Aviemore on the edge of the Cairngorm Plateau and then drove, parked up just kind of side of the road somewhere, left a note in the car saying that we'd be gone three days and then we set off. And in the book, I say that walking into mountains at night kind of has this special feeling. It's like approaching a herd of sleeping cattle. You kind of sense them, the mountains looming in the darkness, but you can't quite see them. And we woke up. uh, I was actually quite disappointed. We woke up to, to drizzle and rain. I'd been expecting snow and I kind of needed snow to sort of continue my imaginative journey into this sort of frozen Arctic tundra that I was hoping to see. But you can't always plan for these things. So we kind of set off into the mountains and then something quite magical happened. We encountered a small herd of what I 
couldn't identify at first. Um, they seemed to be some kind of deer, but they also seemed to be something a bit like dogs. And they turned out to be reindeer. The story of reindeer in the Kangorms is very interesting. They were reintroduced in the 50s by a Swedish Sami reindeer herder and his wife, who came to the Kangorms and he recognised the same kind of tundra landscape that he knew from his home in Sweden. To cut a long story short, they were able to import a small herd across the North Sea and they became established in, on the Kangorm Plateau. And now they're the only free-ranging reindeer herd in Britain. And for me, this was fascinating because it's a link again to that wider Arctic world. And then literally three minutes later, it started snowing. And then the snow became a blizzard. And at this point, Doogie and I parted ways. And I start, I went up the mountain, he went around the mountain. So I found myself halfway up a mountain I didn't know in what was fast approaching a whiteout. And so the reindeer brought the snow and they also brought the fear because, you know, when you're up a mountain in, in the snow and you don't really know where you're going, it's quite an alarming experience, potentially, especially when your friend is, is long out of sight. So the reindeer were kind of the portal for me of, of going from Scotland to being in the Arctic. And it seemed like they'd kind of summoned the snow out of the atmosphere. The Cairngorm Mountains in the hearts of the Scottish Highlands are one of my favourite places on Earth. Stark hills, often shrouded in low cloud and mist, their summits obscured, their flanks lit up by shafts of light breaking through storm, brazen with deep red, brown and orange. A wild place, a place for wandering untrammeled paths. Nan Shepherd, the famous nature writer who walked in these hills, wrote about walking into mountains, not up them, communing with them, not conquering them, and in doing so, exploring ourselves as much as the landscape around us. And it was in this spirit that Nick walked out that dark night into the hills. In all his years of walking these hills, Doogie had never seen this strange transplanted herd of reindeer before. They are incredibly hard to find. And they brought with them the snow. But they brought other magic too. Because later, in the midst of that blizzard and whiteout, worried he might be lost, he sees something. Then, a thump of relief. A man's shape is up there. It must be Doogie. I call and wave. The figure stops, seems to regard me, and then continues on its way. As I hurry after it, it disappears again. And when I see the figure again, it is somehow below me. In the twilight, it has veered off the path and into the boulder field, where it seems to be searching for something, casting about in the gloom. It can't be Doogie. When I look back, down to the rocks, the figure has disappeared. There are stories in these mountains of a big grey man, as he's known, that haunts the summit of Ben McDewey, and accounts ring through the ages of sightings. And whether or not Nick saw him, or even if he exists, I'll leave that to you and your imagination. Celtic myths are embedded into every single one of these ancient stones, and Nick felt their presence as spectres, as ghosts, as stories, as he wandered into, not up, these bleak winter hills. And then he found his portal. For the final day of this three-day walk that we were on, we were walking up above the Larry Grew, kind of looking looking down on it. 
so the shape of the, the glacier, the vanished glacier was very clear. And there was a moment at the end of that journey when looking down into this great gulf, I found this strange vertiginous sensation of kind of, it was almost falling backwards through time into deep time. And it was like falling off the cliff and kind of plunging down into this sort of imaginative past. And then it flipped and I realized that it was also a vision into the future because we know that, you know, the glaciers have long gone from the Cairngorms, but there's glaciers in the Alps and other mountain ranges. And we know in the Alps, for example, 90% of Alpine glaciers are, are going to go by the end of the century. Well, that's the, that's the predictions. So looking down into the Larry Grew in the Cairngorms might be like, you know, looking down at the Rhone Valley in 100 years time or 50 years time so it became a sudden jump from the deep past which is you know intriguing and alluring but safely distant to suddenly looking into the near future the reindeer the myths and ghosts of the cairngorms allowed him to enter a liminal space a time between what was and what is next And in doing so, he began to see the land not as solid and unchanging, but as a moving, evolving landscape. It opened a doorway in his imagination, a portal, and it allowed him to see clearly a truth that for most of us goes unnoticed and for him, for a moment, became real. He saw the landscape as a living thing. He saw deep time, the movement of the land like a time-lapse photograph taken over millions of years flash before him. He saw the movement of glaciers, the carving of valleys, the uplift of mountains. He saw creation, destruction, our past, our future, all in a single glance. The journey had begun. Next, he traveled east from Scotland's Arctic tundra to Central Europe, and one of the most spectacular and unlikely forests in the world. The second journey of the book took me to the very far east of Poland, the border of Belarus, where there is a forest called Bielweja, which is this great mass of oak, lime, hornbeam forest, but there's lots of spruce there too, um, everything really, but it's very famous for its giant oaks. And the thing it's really known for is its great age, because Bielweja is the last big surviving remnant of the primeval wildwood that once covered much of the north of the continent. The heart of it, they reckon, has not been logged or burnt or cleared or interfered with, or even hunted in that much for 800 years, which is very old for, you know, something that's in the middle of Europe, really. You know, we're not talking on the the outermost edges of the continent. It's surrounded by cleared land and settled land for hundreds of miles in every direction. That was the anomaly of this chapter was an Amazon, you know, a kind of the closest thing that we've got to a kind of virgin temperate forest existing in the heart of Europe. But the first few days were really a, a kind of education in how to observe things. And I received this education through a bunch of Polish activists who are forest defenders. And the first thing they did when I arrived, having told me I could stay and, you know, kind of communal meals and all that, is they said, we're going to the forest. Do you want to come? And I just walked 
like four hours. I was pretty tired. I didn't know why we were going to the forest. And it became apparent that they weren't really doing anything. They were, I guess you'd call it a forest bathing. The reason they were there defending these trees was simply because they loved the trees and they loved the forest and they wanted to spend as much time in it as they possibly could. And they just took me on this beautiful meandering walk where we'd had no aim, no purpose whatsoever. And they were just noticing things and pointing them out to each other and to me from the prints of bison in the mud to a bit of chewed plastic that was on the edge of a clearing at the edge of the forest that had been chewed up by a wolf that their neighbor had been using a camera trap to take pictures of. And then we went deeper into the forest and just thousands of wooden enemies spread across the forest floor. And then the thing that really struck me was if you imagine like a police chalk line around a corpse, but the chalk line is, is wooden enemies, this beautiful white flowers, and the corpse is a tree that is no longer exists, that has rotted away, and you can still see the outline of it in flowers around the edge of where this tree was. And so I really started slowing down and noticing the individual trees and the relationships between things. And that was the start of this kind of education in how to look at a forest and kind of feel your way into it. Poland's Białowieża forest is the last remaining old-growth forest in Europe, a remnant of the primeval forest that once stretched from sea to sea across the continent. And while the outskirts have been logged and quote-unquote managed for centuries, the dense interior has remained untouched. Walking amongst these trees is like walking back in time. And like Nan Shepherd's wandering, the forest gardens here roamed aimlessly too, simply absorbing, bathing in the wonder of these ancient trees. But he wasn't just there to wander aimlessly. He was also searching for something, something wild and elusive that would be his portal to another world. My stay in the house of the forest defenders was kind of punctuated by attempting to see a wolf. So... Every morning we got up at dawn and then kind of increasingly early by kind of increments of half an hour and we'd go out and scan the immediate horizon and do a kind of circuit of the village looking for wolves. And it all felt very abstract and unreal to me. You know, I I come from a place where there aren't any wolves and there haven't been for a long time. So it felt like I almost didn't believe in them, in the existence of wolves, but it was a kind of excuse to get up and hear this cacophonous birdsong. It was honestly like, unlike any birdsong I've heard anywhere, it's just kind of deafening and not sort of pretty birdsong. It's like a riot. It's like thousands of beings all screaming and honking and shouting at the same time. And so we didn't see a wolf and we didn't see a wolf and we didn't see a wolf. And then I think it was my penultimate day on my last day in this house before I moved on I went out knowing that I wouldn't see a wolf and everyone else stayed in bed got up very early and walked to the field uh, behind the house and there was a kind of little pond with a patch of mist rising from it in the morning light and I I remember thinking it would be cinematic if a wolf were to appear in that mist. And then, as I thought that, a wolf appeared in that mist. There were three beats where I remember thinking, I haven't seen a wolf yet. I am seeing a wolf. I have seen a wolf. And it felt like that was a kind of moment of my life. And I suppose it's this connection to 
a wildness that has disappeared where I'm from. It just felt, and again, thinking about connections to deep time, seeing a wolf somehow takes you right back there, even though they're as modern as we are. In that moment, he gets it. Pure wildness, pure freedom, the alpha king of this untouched swathe of primeval land. All around is cleared, all around is industry and towns, molded land sculpted to our needs. But here, in this portal, in this wolf's lair, is the wildness we all come from. A wildness that once stretched from sea to sea. Up next is the complete opposite, for we are heading from the hidden jungles of Poland to Europe's only true desert in Spain, where in solitude and extreme heat, he will find his next doorway and a glimpse into a barren future, the start of which we are already beginning to see. This episode of Armchair Explorer is presented by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. From muddy jungle paths and snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has the capability to take you to some of the most epic destinations on Earth. And Pathfinder, that's a pretty cool name, isn't it? Because that's also what this show is all about. Exploring, getting off trail, having adventures, finding your own path and living life to the fullest. Sound like you? Yep, sounds like me too. Which is why I'm so excited to partner with Nissan. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has seven drive modes, available intelligent 4x4. It's got the best towing capacity in its class, up to 6,000 pounds. So go ahead and bring all that gear with you and lots more. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder, a vehicle built for adventures everywhere. So thanks again to Nissan for sponsoring this episode and for the reminder to chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures and enjoy the ride along the way. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. So my interest in European deserts took me to the southeast corner of Spain, Almeria, because there is the, the only desert in Europe by the kind of proper classification of a desert it receives under 250 millimeters of precipitation a year and it's hot and arid it's not a sand desert it's rocky canyons ravines gullies hills of sort of clay and gypsum it's very kind of crumble a sort of landscape that crumbles to the touch you know you touch the kind of side of a canyon and it just kind of falls apart i wanted to go in the summer that felt important as going to the kangoms in the winter felt important but I didn't realize I was arriving literally at the start of the European heat wave that was the worst possible time to walk into a desert, which is already obviously hot and dry with no water. And I received messages of people saying, extreme heat coming your way. The headline in the local paper was, hell is coming. (laughs) But I stayed the night before with a British couple who have ended up living in a sort of off-grid community at the edge of the desert. And she had said, the desert is the teacher. And I thought, well, I've got to learn something then. And my original idea had been to cross the desert. And it became obvious that 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 was impossible because I couldn't carry enough water, you know, physically carry enough water to to not run out of it. And so I holed up in in a canyon or rambler, they're called, in Tabernas. 
and spent most of my time just waiting, actually, just sitting and waiting for it to be cool enough to venture, you know, like, like some kind of insect kind of creeping out when the temperature wasn't going to burn me. And I spent about a week mostly in this canyon and kind of doing walks early in the morning and in the evening. It was an exercise in slowing down, kind of exercising patience. I think it's, especially because I'd come all the way to Spain to do something, you know, to kind of experience something, and, and often that's connected with movement. I kind of think I should be rushing around and visiting things because that's often what you do when you travel. It was kind of comforting knowing that that was not possible that what I had to do was just kind of preserve my water as much as I could. And I'd make very slow movements around the base of this canyon because the the sun would move across the sky and the shadow would move with it. So I'd have to kind of move from one patch of shadow to the next over the course of the day. So it became this kind of very slow migration. And it was another glimpse into the future. If you really want to have a sleepless night, look up you know what extreme temperature does to the human body it's absolutely grisly you know it's literally tissue melting and and perforating and the body cooking you know it's absolutely horrible way to die and this made me think about extreme heat on landscape there seem to be a lot of links between you know the way people in an environment die of heat and the way an environment itself dies of heat and changes into something else and then I started looking at the projections for the way temperatures are projected to climb. So the band of livable climate is shrinking, or the band of unlivable climate is is growing across the equator and the, the center of the world. So I was kind of walking into a vision of the future, and one that was really terrifying. He was on a kind of vision quest in a way, not intentionally, but by necessity. The heat forced him to slow down, to stop moving, and simply to notice, to be aware. For five days, he witnessed. He did nothing else. He watched processions of beetles and insects through his camp, hoodoos glowing red in the sun. He moved across his gully with the passing of shadows, staying out of the scorching heat. At dawn and dusk, he scrambled on hands and knees to the top of the canyon to see the spectrum of desert color, as he describes it. Purple-gray, purple-orange, purple-red, charcoal, ash, crimson, kidney-red, yellow, dun, terracotta, emerging and submerging, a memory that the heat destroys. I told you he's a beautiful writer. In the evening, he listens to the call of cicadas, like steam escaping from a pressure valve, he writes, and stares in awe at the stars at night. And through this vision, he saw the future. The desert was the teacher. And if in the Cairngorms he saw the negative imprint of glaciers long gone, here he saw the negative imprint of water. He saw the arid, barren world to come, and it scared him, and it should scare us too. He had one last stop on his list, one last portal to explore. Hotrabaj National Park, a vast grassland more suited to the Mongolian plains than fields of Central Europe. He was headed to the Hungarian steppe. And as it turned out, one of the strangest music festivals in the world. So I wanted this experience of standing in this 
sea of grass and kind of imagining my way all the way beyond the horizon to, you know, to sort of the steps of Mongolia and the border of China. And the influence of the steppe is really seen in the culture as well. And there's a lot of national pride in this kind of equivalent really to the cowboys of the American West. There's a kind of cowboys of the wild East. So you get these guys called Sikos who are Hungarian cowboys. They don't look like Western cowboys. They've got these sort of tricorn hats and kind of blue pantaloons. You know, they look very dashing and brigand-like. And all of these costumes come from a time of cattle rustling and invading you know, imperial forces across this kind of last great free swathe of grassland, which inevitably was slowly kind of controlled and, and fenced in and tamed. But there's this sort of bandit pride and lots of sort of you know outlaw songs and kind of the, the myth of the highwayman is all very alive. And my time in Hungary came in one of the strangest cultural events that I have ever found. And this is something called the Koraltai, which happens every year, and it's a celebration of steppe identity. So you get the Tsikos, these Hungarian cowboys, and you get these people dressed as Betyars, who were the sort of the proper kind of bandits who, who, who haunted the steppe. But there's also an invitation for people from as far away as Mongolia and sort of the Russian republics and Central Asia, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, all of these countries of, of yurts and, and free roaming over the open grassland, they send kind of delegates. So in the middle of Hungary, I found myself at something that was somewhere between a far-right nationalist rally, because there's an element of Hungarian nationalism which is looking east to this kind of cult of sort of machismo and sort of proud, strong men with big moustaches shooting arrows, you know, backwards on horses, that kind of thing. But there was also, you know, a kind of real folk element. So there were people from various hung Hungarian people from different parts of Europe who had come together to celebrate this identity. And then you've got the Mongolians with their yurts and Mongolian dancing girls and people handing out fermented mare's milk. And then people from, from Turkey, you know, people, anyone that identified as this kind of steppe people turns up at this, this festival. And it's a celebration of migration and this sort of, yeah, freewheeling identity. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you had, you know, guys who really wanted to be a sort of dark age army ransacking a village, you know, and would dress for the occasion. <laughs> I never saw so many weapons at a music festival before. People walking <laughs> around with swords, bows and arrows, axes stuck in their belts. It was utterly kind of bizarre expression of this cultural identity. But one, in terms of the kind of the, the bigger themes of the book and the, the theme of climate change, very much about migration so my mind was on, you know, what happens when the climate changes. And one of the things that is thought to have spurred these migrations from the, you know, the east of Eurasia were climactic changes, where the, you know, the pastures might have died or trees might have grown or they'd become wetter or drier or more boggy and the horses couldn't graze. So it just pushed these sort of waves of migrant herders further west and they'd push another wave west and these people would sort of displace each other until Europe itself was altered. So it was very pertinent thinking of looking at this kind of 
you know, cosplay that people were dressed up as sort of medieval Mongol warriors, but it was also looking with another eye to the the future in which the world is is still changing and will continue to change. These journeys, he writes, through snowstorms and burning sun, mountains and deserts, forests and plains, were also walks through time. They did not only lead me backwards into pre-human history, glacial landscapes and great migrations, by way of Paleolithic cave art and reindeer nomads and desert wanderers and shavens, Slavic forest gods, ibex, European bison, eco-activists, horseback archers, big grey men and other unlikely spirits of place, but forward too into a future whose maps we are only just starting to glimpse. The moment it all came together was around a poem that had been sort of haunting me that I'd first heard as I walked into the mountains, into the Cairngorm, at the very start of these journeys. And the poem is actually by a, a Scottish artist called Alec Finley. How did we first come here, following behind the reindeer, walking backwards into spring? And I didn't really understand the meaning of this poem. I still don't. Doogie thought it related to the myth of a fairy man who was seen riding backwards on a reindeer, facing backwards, warning people about the snowfall coming, about you know, the weather conditions, what, what's kind of what, what's coming next. And suddenly, all of these landscapes seem to be kind of all part of this poem in some way. The idea of of walking backwards into the future. So we often think. You know, the future's ahead of us and the past is behind us and we're walking forward. But it's a lot more realistic to think that we're walking backwards, not seeing where we're going. And the past, we can see, but it's receding from view. And the further we walk, the further the way it gets. So it seemed at the end of the book, I was kind of at a state of thinking, well, we're kind of, we're all walking backwards into this dark, unknown future, looking back at the past. Nick's outlandish vision had now come into focus. Disappearing swathes of wildness, the encroachment of catastrophic climate change. In these near-gone lands and unlikely landscapes, liminal oases of what once was and what may be, he found his place in the line of deep time and saw the world as it truly is, impermanent, evolving, becoming, just too slowly for the flash of our lives to see. But it is important that we do see, and that's what this story is all about. We are all walking backwards into the future, but there are portals. And if we look for them, if we imagine them, if we learn to truly see, these portals can turn us from our blind backwards stumbling and for just an instant show us not just the path from where we've come, but also the path the future is taking us. At the end of the book, back now walking in the Cairngorms again, a funeral service was being held 9,000 feet up in the Alps to mark the death of Pizel, a vanished Swiss glacier, lost of its substance, soon to be just water again. Across the sea, a plaque had been laid at a glacier in Iceland known simply as OK. It reads, A Letter to the Future. Oke is the first Icelandic glacier to lose its status as a glacier. In the next 200 years, all our glaciers are expected to follow the same path. This monument, 
is to acknowledge that we know what is happening and what needs to be done. Only you know if we did it. Thank you, Nick. Thank you for taking us on this beautiful journey through Europe's unlikely landscapes, the outlands that few of us ever see. The book is called Outlandish. And if you like this episode, go out and get it straight away. It's available everywhere you get your books and it's packed with so much more wisdom and insight and adventure than we could have possibly fitted into this episode. You can also go to nickhuntscrutiny.com to connect with him and find out more about his other works too. So that's all we have time for. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for being part of this community. It really does mean the world to me. And remember to look for those outlandish places near and far because there is wonder everywhere. And the more we look for wonder in the world, the more the wonder of the world becomes a part of who we are. Dare to be truly alive.